welcome to the Farmers Weekly Podcast, this episode recorded on Thursday the 9th of April 2020. I'm Farmers Weekly Chief Reporter Johan Tasker. And I'm Hugh Broom. In this week's podcast, agronomists warn that a new mutation of yellow rust disease is threatening winter wheat crops across the country. Coronavirus means a shortage of sheep shearers. And how farmers have teamed up for lockdown learning, keeping schoolchildren entertained during the Easter holidays and beyond. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. But first, dairy farmers have been forced to dump milk this week as the coronavirus crisis pushes the dairy supply chain into turmoil. The effective shutdown of the food service industry has left upwards of 5 million litres of milk with nowhere to go. Here's Staffordshire dairy producer Peter Pratt. The last couple of days they have actually taken the milk up. So far I've had to take one day's milk away. The biggest problem is, is the unknown. Are we going to get paid? Are we not going to get paid? Are we going to pay for the milk we've tipped away? And what's the future going to hold? We can't move to another dairy because they're full up of milk. We can't shut down milking because cows need to be milked every day. We're sort of stuck at the minute. We can't do anything. We want to sell up. We can't sell up because no evidence worth us at the minute. Farm leaders have called on dairy processors to take their fair share of pain rather than passing losses back to dairy producers. And farming organisations are calling for government to step in. I spoke to NFU Cymru Dairy Board Chair Abby Reader. I think we're finding the industry in a crisis at the moment. It's escalating quite quickly and it's it's quite horrifying to watch it unfolding. And is this starting to spread across the wider supply chain or is it just where food service is the customer? If you'd asked me this question at the beginning of the week, I would have told you about 200 farms in Wales were in trouble. If we're just looking at Wales specifically, now we're up to over 500 by the end of the week. And that's, that's just in Wales. So what's the answer in the short term, do you think? As much as it's being a very painful hit, it's not going to be here long term. So somehow we have to find a way to button down the hatches for the next eight to 12 months. But that's very easy to say if you are not waiting for a milk check to pay you for your last six weeks and in some cases, eight, 10, 12 weeks supply of milk. So it's all about having conversations with government, with processors, with retailers. We need to try and enable this milk to move into retail stores as quickly as it can. And I'm still getting people reporting in that there is not enough milk on their shop shelves. We've got to try and help that government. We need to help them understand what the problems are, help them identify the problem farms and get direct income support to those farms immediately because they need it now. Presumably some of these businesses are going to be on the edge in another week or two. Yeah, totally. I know from first-hand experience what it's like not to receive a milkshack for six weeks, and that's pretty dire. If you've gone over that barrier, you are really going to be getting quite desperate. Ultimately, once this is over, what do we need to do to stop this happening again? Is there anything we should be doing? Well, there has been a lot of rumblings. A lot of people have started to talk about the Milk Marketing Board all over again. Now, usually when you hear Milk Marketing Board, everybody has a bit of a chuckle and a bit of a scoff and and we hark back to, to the old days. But actually, I do think this has got legs now. And I think that we need to be thinking completely outside the box. Look for something totally new. It doesn't mean it's got to be the old model. But somehow we need to make sure we don't, we don't have these disjointed problems again. And we know where milk is going. And if it has to move somewhere else, it can. We've got to protect ourselves because we're stronger as an industry. I need my neighbours in my farming patch to survive because they keep my feed merchant, my seed merchant, they keep our machinery guys going. They're all so important. We're joined now by Farmers Weekly Deputy Business Editor Andrew Meredith. Andrew, why is the supply chain failing? The whole supply chain is backed up. 
there's an estimated 5 million litres of milk a week now, surplus to requirements. Andrew, it's Hugh here. Which of these mid-tier processors would you say are the worst affected by the decline in food service? Certainly the one which farmers have been contacting us the most about is Freshways. Now, this is a processor that specialises in supplying smaller sites, smaller corner shops. They also have a big presence among hospitals and care homes. And of course, those businesses are still running, but they've lost about 40% of their trade overnight. And that milk has nowhere to go now as the spot price is on the floor. And have any of the mid-tier processors managed to find a solution to the decline in food service? One interesting example of perhaps a more collaborative approach is Graham's Dairy in Scotland. Now, Robert Graham, the chief executive, spoke to all his farmers this week in a series of conference calls to explain to them that while their Aldi milk supply contract is secure, they've lost a lot of business supplying those same catering and coffee companies. What they're doing is still collecting all the milk from farms. But on days when they have an excess, they're skimming the milk and keeping the cream because there's still a small amount of value in that but then they're disposing of the skim milk in their own waste disposal plant. That costs about 16 pence a litre to dispose of that, and the farmer and the processor are sharing that 50-50. If everybody produced milk to the same standard as the uh, supermarket-aligned contracts, then it would be easier than to shift milk around the supply chain, redirect it where it was needed most. You have to appreciate the turmoil that's been going on in the supermarket sector of late. Now, Robert Graham was telling me this week, orders are fluctuating wildly by up to 100% a day. So that's having a real impact on logistical capacity. There may be gaps on shelves, even with an unlimited milk supply, simply because they're not able to put it into packaging fast enough and there isn't enough lorry space for it. And what you've got to remember is milk is delivered to coffee shops and catering businesses in completely different packaging to how we pick it off the shelf in a four pint can. Now, some people might be able to bring a 20 litre bag of milk home, but I certainly wouldn't be able to here in my one bed flat in London. This has come at the worst possible time in the year for the dairy sector because we're entering that spring flush when all those spring calving dairy herds return to the parlour, milk supply is going to be increasing exponentially from now until early May. But it is an issue for those liquid processors who have to deal with it every year. And they would much rather that this problem, if they had to deal with it at some point, they would much rather be dealing with it in the autumn than in the spring. Hi, it's Mark Tucker here, Head of Agronomy for Yarra UK. I'm joined by Philip Cosgrave, who's the country grassland agronomist. We've had a number of farmer webinars running and a theme that's come through from those is how do we achieve quality grass with our first and second cuts. There's a lot of variation this year with regards to fertilisation dates. So I would think for those who haven't yet put on their first cut fertiliser, we're looking at maybe reducing don't go with a, a standard rate. Take into account when, you, when you're likely to cut that grass and then work back accordingly. For second cuts, at this stage, they're likely to be lighter. Don't sacrifice yield for quality. If you want to produce high quality silage, well then you need to be cutting your silage earlier. The earlier you cut it, the higher protein levels are and also the higher the, the ME levels will be. Thanks for that, Philip. If you want more information on that, then please go to yara.co.uk and search for the booster range of fertilisers and you'll get more detail there.
Now we turn to things arable and yellow rust is causing some big problems, uh, particularly in the north of the UK for some growers. We're going to be finding out some more about that. Before we do that, though, one of the things we do regularly on this podcast is to check in with one of the many agronomists working across the UK and find out what they've been seeing in their fields in the last week. Now, this week, it's the turn of Linda Shepherd, who works for AgroVista in the southeast of the UK. She covers farms in West Sussex, West Kent and some farms in Surrey. I started off by asking Linda if the change in the weather had enabled lots of progress. Well, the dry weather has been amazing and we have managed to get, I would say, about 90% drilled up now for spring crops. And the last few bits and pieces will go in over the next few days, which has been a, a real success story after all the wet winter. And what was the picture like a month or so ago in terms of how much winter seed got in the ground? Well, on the wheel clay, very little. I would say probably only 30%. But if you're on downland, particularly south downs, because that's more freer draining than some of the north downs, that really upped the percentages and a lot of those farms on those uh, downland farms were pretty much drilled up. And what's in the ground now? Is it wall-to-wall spring barley? There's a lot of spring barley. There is some spring wheat where they had some home safe seed or were able to get some early on. Uh, so be, yes, there's a lot of barley. There's also some spring oats. So the weather's really warmed up this week so things must be really changing. What have you been seeing? There's a lot of septora in the bottom of crops, some stem-based diseases, so ice spot can be seen on those earlier drilled crops. And we mustn't forget that those later drilled crops are actually more susceptible to mildew and yellow rust. So there might be a temptation to spend less money on them in fun terms of fungicide because of their yield potential, but we don't want it to be a self-fulfilling prophecy because they will be more susceptible to some of these diseases. What are you seeing there with rape crops across the south? Well, golly, that's a whole mixed bag with oilseed rape. We've got normal looking crops, which are at their full height. We've got crops which are also in full flower now, but quite short. And we have some crops which are so full of flea beetle larvae that they've really not got going this spring and the pigeons are on them as well. So a whole range and some of those small plants are also now dying off. And I think that some crops will still be written off unfortunately so it's been a real difficult crop this season more than we expected we were expecting the flea beetle but there's so much larvae in these plants now that um, it's a real disappointment because you know they spent the money on the curb curb um, astrocurb just to get rid of all the grass weeds um, but now some of them are just sitting there and not growing so the ones that are in full flower uh, pollen beetle uh, risk has now passed although numbers are building in some crops and we appear to have some pockets of seed weevil so we just should still monitor those because the threshold is one per plant or seed rape the total combinable area will be much less than that was planted that's for sure agronomist linda shepherd now elsewhere in the country unprecedented levels of yellow rust are being reported in later sown winter wheat crops and we're joined on the line by jeff fieldsend commercial technical manager at agrochemical manufacturer fmc agro jeff whereabouts in the country is this happening and why it's happening principally uh, in the east of the country, although uh, I am picking up reports of rust further over to the west. And the reason that we're seeing these high levels of yellow rust 
is down to uh, a lot of the winter wheat varieties being established uh, later into the autumn and into this early part of 2020. Varieties that are established later tend to be more susceptible to this particular pathogen. Where has this yellow rust come from? We believe that there is either a new race being found or a mutation within the the existing race that is causing a much more widespread problem than what we've been dealing with hitherto. We are finding that even varieties that have disease ratings of of 8 and 9, growers and agronomists are reporting that they are finding rust infections, yellow rust infections in those varieties where they would not have expected to have seen it before. Is there anything in particular that growers should be looking out for? Fairly easy to identify and recognise that's the active pustules of yellow rust. It's pretty easy to recognise. And what sort of actions should be taken and when should growers be taking it? As soon as a crop starts to uh, reach the uh, growth stage 30 or uh, at what we would call the uh, T0 timing, they should be looking to apply a rust active triazole onto the crop, which uh, we find are very good at knocking out early infections. Uh, a half rate or a three quarter rate triazole is usually needed or is capable of, of taking out this infection. Are there any other options at all that growers should be looking at? They could use a strobilurin-based chemistry. I don't think it's as fast-acting as some of the uh, rust-active triazoles. This is a pretty serious disease. What could happen if it was left to its own devices, Jeff? What we tend to find is yield penalties can range anywhere from 10 up to 70% in uh, the worst-case scenarios on untreated crops. What you tend to find, though, is that because it's got a a short latent period, it tends to reinfect the crop quite easily and better controlled at this early stage rather than leaving it to a standard growth stage 31 stroke 32, where in that case, if the disease wasn't controlled early, you would have to use a much higher rate of either triazole or other chemistry to combat the uh, infection. We'd like to thank our sponsors, KWS, for this episode. They've just launched Cereals 360, which is a virtual crop tour of all their key cereal and oilseed varieties. It's easy to use on the web, tablet or mobile, and provides all the key expert information you would get from one of their open days. To take a look, visit Cereals360.com. The Farmer's Weekly Podcast. This is indeed the Farmers Weekly podcast. It's number two in our current season. Welcome along. It's great to have you here. Time now for some more market news. We talked about dairy earlier on. Welcome back, Andrew Meredith from the Farmers Weekly business desk. Andrew, some better news for feed prices because the wheat price is being pushed down by the maize price. Explain that one. Maize prices have continued to fall this week uh, around the world as traders adjust their appetite appetite for the crop. Maize as well as been important for animal feed also goes into ethanol production which ends up in biodiesel. That's a much bigger market in the US than it is here but when the price falls in America 
the price at which uh, it ships into the UK falls too, and that's good for anyone with animals to feed because maize is a big component of animal feed for lots of different species. Farmers may be seeing prices of compound feed come down over the months ahead if there is a glut of maize to shift in the US. And signs of a turnaround perhaps for lamb as well this week, Andrew? Early signs of a recovery, yes. Livestock markets, as we know, have just about remained open. This has meant that fat lamb can remain for sale. And after the fright that buyers took a few weeks ago, which saw prices fall by 25%, there's been a recovery this week, albeit with lower throughput. We've seen prices in the markets this week averaging 213 pence a kilo, up from 199 pence a kilo last week. Now that 213 pence a kilo, still a lot lower than where it was, but interestingly, it's the same price as farmers were getting for their product this time last year. So not a bad price given the circumstances we're in. And some more good news on the diesel front, because the oil prices continue to fall this week. Red diesel prices remain on the floor. 42.2 pence a litre average across farms this week. And this is encouraging some farmers to forward fix what they need even as far ahead as up to harvest 2021. Minced beef has been causing rumblings in some supermarket aisles this week. Yes, farmers were quick to take to social media this week when they spotted Polish produced minced beef packets cropping up on supermarket shelves, particularly Asda and Sainsbury's and pictures were soon everywhere online. But with beef prices still at very low levels compared to uh, historical values, farmers have been quick to express their condemnation. Indeed they have, and in fact uh, many farmer organisations have condemned this, including the National Beef Association. And this is what one of their trustees, Neil Shand, had to say about it. A major gaffe in times of, of timing. We, we all realise we're a net importer and the balance of our beef supply chain has been turned on its head. We do accept the switching off of the service sector, which a lot of this Polish meat would have normally gone down that route into school dinners, care homes. We know it, it comes in every week. We need help from supermarkets to readdress the carcass balance problems and, and promote joints and, and promote steaks to get that part of the carcass moving. Meat sales have gone through the roof, you know, 150% up in March in many cases. And we've got the British public back to beef and we need to keep them there. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. Still to come, we'll be finding out about lockdown learning. It's a way of showing kids who are stuck at home what actually happens on our farms. We'll find out how it works and, more importantly, we'll find out how you can get involved in it as well. That's a good thing. Now, um, it's just it doesn't stop, does it, Johan, the whole virus thing? It's affecting everything across the board. There's been a lot of focus, of course, on labour shortages in agriculture, including uh, in the mainstream media as well as in the agriculture press. People are crying out for workers to come onto farm but it's also affecting other aspects as well and over the past two weeks we've seen other things too such as fly tipping everywhere because council tips are closed. Now another area where there's concern is that of sheep shearing. Every year sheep shearers come into the UK from abroad. The organisation which helps to organise the visas for those vital workers is the National Association of Agricultural Contractors. 
Now, the chief executive of that organisation is Jill Hewitt, and I spoke to her and started by asking her how many come in every year. We'd estimate that there are 100 to 150-ish overseas shearers coming into the UK. The NAAC gets involved by working with the Home Office each year to set up a, a special exemption for shearers to to enter the UK so they don't need a visa. Main countries they come from are Australia, New Zealand and the States. This year, obviously, a bit of a challenge because no one can go anywhere. So what are you saying to the Home Office this year? Well, we've been working with DEFRA and the Home Office at the moment to really get a very clear position as to whether, if people can get flights, they can still come. I mean, I'm aware that there are some shearers who booked flights a while ago. Um, Whether those flights are still available, we don't know. But what we need is a clear position so that we know if they're able to come, whether they will be welcome. And in terms of the shortfall that we're looking at this year for this season, how does that look at the moment? We estimate that overseas shearers probably shear about 20% of the UK flock, which is two to three million, that sort of number. They're professional shearers that are shearing all year round, a lot of them. So they're highly skilled and they've got the speed to do numbers without any negative impacts on animal welfare. So we are going to have quite a serious hole in our workforce this year if the shearers can't come in. And what are you doing to try and mitigate that if they can't come in? We've been working with DEFRA to make sure that shearers will be able to travel. And that all seems OK at the moment. So in terms of shearers working, at the moment, it seems as though that shouldn't be an issue as long as they abide by social distancing. What we've been doing is we've set up a sort of matchmaking website on the NAAC website with other industry support where we're listing shearing contractors and asking shearers to register their details so that we can try and matchmake shearing contractors and UK shearers so we can still get the job done. We're also looking at providing some guidance. I've been working with some practicing shearers to try and provide some practical guidance for farmers and shearers so that when shearers come to farm, everybody's ready and set up for them and we can keep shearers and the farm staff separate. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. And finally, in this week's Farmers Weekly Podcast, Farmers are giving school children a taste of the countryside this Easter by posting videos of life on the farm online. The Lockdown Learning Initiative is teaching children where their food comes from while showcasing the UK's fantastic farming industry. And I'm joined now by two of the people involved, Simon Haley from Eat Farm Now and Anna Jones from Just Farmers. Simon, how did this all start? So Lockdown Learning is an independent grassroots initiative to provide learning resources for children who will be out of school, in effect. And you're asking farmers to video what they do and post the footage online. What we're trying to do is leverage real farmers, real stories, real lives, and try to enable school children who are at home, you know, sat in their kitchens and lounges and dining rooms to effectively still be able to get that farm to fork learning. Anna, what sort of content are farmers submitting? Mainly video content. It's sort of farmers showing what they do at home on their farms and how they produce the food that they do, but answering questions from kids. And as we all know, kids' questions are always the most 
amusing and uh, incisive as well. They kind of ask things that you'd never wondered about yourself. So one of them is why are farmers so smelly? I thought that was brilliant. And Will Evans answered that in a video with uh, Charlie Baker, the comedian. And what kind of dogs are most helpful to farmers? And just questions like that. It's children coming up with their own curiosities and then farmers answering them in a way that is engaging and easy to understand and crucially actually shows them the answer. It just seems like a fun thing for kids to be able to connect with at home. And Simon, is this just for the Easter holidays or is it for longer? It's an eight-week campaign. Each week is going to have a different theme. So obviously the first week is leading up to Easter and including all of that. So we've been talking about life cycles, life cycles looking at pig production, uh, lambing, carving, and then future weeks are going to be looking at horticulture, agritech, and other issues and themes beyond. So we're hoping, obviously no one knows how long this lockdown is going to last at the moment, but we're hoping there's going to be a real fantastic resource of content uh, and ideas and initiatives and exercises we're, we're trying to enable that that connection at a time when obviously a lot of people are are disconnected from everything Johanna. Anna you're something of an expert in this what makes a good video it needs to look good it needs to be snappy and fun and engaging and not too long and actually have shots in there that the kids can see you don't just want to be looking at a farmer's face talking for five minutes you want to be cutting away to images of chickens and sheep and pigs and cows and seeing the farm you're not just farmers making videos you are storytellers and you have to own that story and think of the best way to tell it. And if you want to see those videos and stories, they are all on the Eat Farm Now website at eatfarmnow.com. And that's it for this week's Farmers Weekly podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're going to be hearing from Sir Peter Kendall as he stands down having done two terms as AHDB chair. And he'll be telling us why he thinks government needs to do more to back British farming. And we'll be cooking up something very special for St George's Day with ladies in beef. And as things continue to change apace, we'll have a full markets roundup as well. I'm Hugh Broom. And I'm Johan Tasker. See you next time. <laughs>